0: The Incomparable Podcast, number 101, August 2012. Welcome back, everybody, to The Incomparable Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Snell. It's episode 101, starting a new century of podcasting excellence. Uh, excellence in quotation marks. Uh, to, this week's episode is about a book. It's Red Shirts by John Scalzi. We did an entire podcast about John Scalzi and his collected works. It's number 37, so you can get to that at 5 by 5tv slash incomparable slash 37. That episode is called Shadow War of the Night Dragons. Uh, it's got, uh, we talk about basically all the books that Scalzi wrote up to Red Shirts, which is the topic of today's podcast. Joining me to talk about Red Shirts are these three fine, upstanding citizens. Serenity Caldwell is with us again. Hello.
1: Hello. I wouldn't call myself upstanding, but you know what? I'll take the compliment. I
0: I called you that, so I get to do that. All right. Uh, Also, uh, the the great and well-read Scott McNulty. Hi, Scott. Hello, Jason. And I I would call myself great, so spot on. Mm -hmm. And joining us from the Pacific Northwest, a man who reads many books and has many opinions about them, Glenn Fleischman. Hi, Glenn.
2: I have no opinion about whether I'm here tonight or not. Thank you.
0: Thank you. That, that helps a lot. So Red Shirts is a very strange, um, it's a very strange book with a very strange subject. And when I first heard that this book was coming out, I, um, I kind of thought it was a joke. Um, cause let's, let's go through the history here. John Scalzi, wrote this Shadow War of the Night Dragons thing, which actually was a joke, and it got nominated for a Hugo Award for Best Short Story. That was his, uh, the idea of the perfectly targeted fantasy novel title. Um, and he also did Little Fuzz, Fuzzy or Fuzzy Nation, which is the reboot of a classic sci-fi novel, Little Fuzzy. And so then he, this Red Shirts thing gets announced, and I think to myself surely this isn't real this is, has john Scalzi gone crazy is is he doing all this um you know all these strange pranks and stunts and and wacky chapters to books that don't exist and reboots of things uh is he gonna really write a whole novel uh, with the premise that it's uh basically star trek scene from the uh from the perspective of the red shirts who are going off to their impending doom and on a fundamental level that is sort of where this book starts,
1: right? He did this book the only way that this book could have been done. I kind of feel like. <laughs>
2: it's like ev- everything he did the chicken, he did the uh the kitchen sink approach to this. He like took everything you said, he did simultaneously.
0: Well, the, so this book there is a way to do this book and do it extremely badly. Right, which is to say, okay, here's it's going to be wacky. We're going to have a ship, and it's going to be like Star Trek, and the the characters will be recognizably Star Trek characters, and except our main characters are the red shirts, and they all realize that the red shirts get killed a lot, and it really bugs them, and that's there's it's a novel, and then we would get that in a couple of chapters, and then the rest of it would just be just belabor it. Endlessly. And I I could, I I mean, that is what I dreaded when I read this book was that it was going to be this one joke. And I was like, well, Scalzi, I like his stuff. Let's see if there's some other way to do this. But that was my fear was that this was going to be a a, a sort of a single joke played out over uh, an inappropriate length. And we would get the joke really early on. And then there would be nothing left uh, to appreciate about it, right? I mean, did anybody else, you know, Scott, was that your feeling about it going in? it was my my fear,
3: you fear uh, i'm yeah. always suspicious of books whose um the author name is larger than the title and uh this <laughs> is a book that yes. in fact, that is uh, i guess john Scalzi has gotten to that point in his career where his name is more important than the title of the book uh so that that worried me and then of course the the premise like you said is kind of flimsy uh you know it's kind of like a uh a running science fiction joke, so I didn't know what more could be done with it. Um, and especially I didn't know if it was a joke that could last a whole novel. Um, but he cleverly kind of made it kind of three different things together, so uh, he kind of addressed that. Um, but, you know, I mean, it's it's
0: it's it wasn't horrible.
1: <laughs> I actually quite liked it.
0: Yeah, I liked it too, and I liked it because it wasn't one of the big reasons i liked it is because it was not what i expected i expected so just to, as a brief recap we meet these red shirt characters this indeed the 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 horror story you know my fear of what this book would be about it is – that's what the book is at the start right so at the start we meet these characters who are being assigned to the intrepid which is this ship that's a very enterprise like ship it's the flagship of the universal union the dub dub Right, Is there a W the W, I forget what they call it. Yep, it's just it's it's ridiculous because it's the Federation. It's the W. That's a W space fleet. The Wub Wub. The W space fleet. The flagship. The Universal Union capital ship Intrepid. Right, and 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 the characters. There's a uh, an alien-ish guy who's very basically Spock, and there's this blowhard captain, and there's a, you know, an engineer and a doctor, and, I mean, it's, he's done a good job of, you know, uh, changing everything while making it perfectly clear, oh, we all know what he's doing here. And so it looks like this is going to be the story, and then uh, what Scalzi did that I thought was really impressive is he, um, you know, he, he, gives his character he treats his characters like real people and he treats the premise uh seriously and then just sort of takes it to its fullest extent and um I didn't expect that I really didn't expect him yes, to say well okay <laughs> what if what if this scenario yes. played out um and, and then it gets really weird in meta right where he also throws in there that they realize that this is they They find this reclusive character who's like hiding in the middle of the ship somewhere uh, where all these uh like carts are stored or something
2: it's so bizarre it's i, I thought you'd like that part because of the real genius <laughs> it reference.
0: is actually yeah it's laszlo uh, it is he is laszlo and he he uh he is obsessed with something called the narrative and it turns out that this is uh this is uh more than just a story about characters who are stuck on, uh, on Star Trek uh, about to be killed. It's a ca- it's a story about characters whose lives are being determined by the scripts of a sci-fi TV series.
1: And as we learn, a particularly bad sci-fi not, series. Not
0: so great. Not so great. Uh, and, and Scalzi himself was the technical advisor for, for the, for Stargate Universe, the last of the Stargate series. So he had some experience with TV, although he has an author's note where he says, look, this Stargate Universe was much better than this terrible show I'm writing about now. Uh, so it, it that, that point, I have to admit, that point, at that point, the novel almost lost me because I thought it was going to get very meta, and, which it did, but, um, and And overly clever and and that was the moment where I really uh i I began to fear that this was not what I expected but might actually be worse than I expected.
1: you know I think it brings both of those <laughs> things, but at the same time it it rides the line very carefully. I have to admit when I first started reading the book, and this is the first Scalsey book that I have read, wow. uh, which is an interesting way to to enter into his fiction.
0: Yeah, Old Man's War might be a better place to start, but okay.
1: Yeah, Old Man's War was on my list, but this one came out first, and I heard that it was short, and we were talking about potentially discussing it, and I'm like, I like red shirts.
3: Well, there you go, and it's his best-selling book, so I wow. think that for a lot of people, it's this will be the first possible. taste of John. But house.
1: yeah, the first when I first started reading this, I actually assumed I'm like, okay, well, they can go one of two ways. I I thought about the TV show in the back of my head, but my first thought was, oh. They're going to have, like, an evil AI controlling and pulling the strings, right? <laughs> sure. And everybody's basically been blackmailed by this evil AI. to you're, an
0: you're looking for an in-universe premise, right?
1: You know, I assumed it was that way. And then the second they start talking about the narrative, I'm like, oh, wait. You mean this crazy half-assed thought I had in the very beginning of the, you know, <laughs> reading the book is actually where they're going? This is insanity. Yes yeah it was a whole exactly. ass turns <laughs> up I always put my yeah.
0: well a talented writer hides half of the ass for later but right? then
2: he lulls then he lulls us into a sense of believing that the narrative that he's constructed as the narrative with a capital n and time travel plots and all this nonsense he leads us to believe that that's actually the narrative he's telling. Then he tells a different narrative within that structure. Then he tells three more narratives in appendixes.
0: Yeah, right. Or oh, the codas.
1: which, which the we'll the get codas to. Which so brilliant? We'll, we'll get to the codas. You know what, I the the book was fun, and the, the general plot of you know the red shirts was pretty great. And I I was like, yeah, this is a solid B book, and like really enjoyable, and something fun to read. It's Good summer reading. And then
0: he drops the, the hammer. The codas
1: one after the other. Yep.
0: Yeah. Yeah. So, so before we get there, so, so, yeah. What happens is, you know, you're reading a story. This, this is um, the meta part. You're reading a story, and it turns out that these guys are being controlled by this narrative, which is the TV show. And, and as I was saying earlier, that's the point where I thought, oh, gee, this could go horribly wrong. And where it doesn't go wrong is he, he just keeps going with taking the whole thing seriously, and say, and you can see him almost as a writer saying, "All right, <laughs> I've done that. Now what?" And it's like, "Well, now they're going to try to go. You know, they'll try to go contact the writers of the show. They'll try to go back in time. But how is that possible? Well, of course, Star Trek and shows like it use ridiculous things that don't make any sense. And there are several points scientists in the who are characters say." That doesn't work. You you couldn't do it that way. And it's like it doesn't matter when the narrative is focused. Anything is possible because they just – whatever the writers write happens. So that's his commentary part. But they, they, they go back. That That, that was a moment where it got me back all the way was when they said, no, we're going to go and try to talk to these people who are writing these stories and get them to stop killing us. <laughs> because that – if you were that character – in that world, that's exactly that's exactly what, what do. you
1: would go do.
0: Yeah. And so then they do that. And then they have their adventures on on planet Earth trying to deal with the the, the writers of the Intrepid <laughs> series and trying to meet them and then they discover that they are meeting their actors, which is some leads lovely to some Star Trek wackiness. 4
1: there a little and bit. Is that is that that
0: Star Trek 4? Yeah, also it reminded me, and I, it's something I mentioned before, there's this um, visit to a weird planet um, fan fiction, although I think it was uh, published uh, in the 70s, um, uh, that was about star- a, a, a transporter accident that swaps the actors with the actual Star Trek characters, and there are two stories told from the opposite vantage points, where the actors are on the Enterprise and where the real characters are now in in modern day or 1960s california um and it, it was it was very much in that vein too where, where suddenly there's the chekhov like character who keeps getting horribly maimed but then miraculously saved um and his uh his actor is like uh some sort of famous kind of more playboyish kind of character and they they have there's a whole like uh you know whole set piece really where they they end up kidnapping him and driving him cuz he's he's drunk and they 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 kidnap him and drive him away in his car um and, and then they talk to him which again you end up with these duplicates actually talking there's no no cheat of like well what what happened i don't know he was unconscious he'll never know the truth it's like no he and his actor have a have a whole conversation about their lives which is again Scalzi taking it taking it seriously in, in this completely crazy idea of a plot. He, he never, you know, he's funny, but he's taking it seriously in the sense that he's going to, he's going to explore his premise to its conclusions and not fit, fa- not do a fake out, which I really like.
1: Yeah. It doesn't feel like he's just putting it forth as you were saying as like a, Oh, well, I guess they'll never talk to each other and you can't meet your past pseudo self. But I mean, this is something that the codas, which come after the story, play on in a great deal. Is so the characters go back and meet their actor selves, and they meet the writers of the show, and they basically chew out the writer of the show and be like, "Why (laughs) are you gotta kill us, man?" (laughs) And after that all happens, and things are resolved in a way that I guess we can. Well, I suppose everybody listening has read the book. Well, we'll
0: say let's fire the spoiler horn off.
1: (laughs) <laughs> Spoiler horn, yeah. So they get things resolved, and then, then what happens afterwards? What happens once you realize that a show that you have been writing is real people?
0: Well, uh, I mean, before that though, the, in the last two, in, in the last two chapters, there are these two characters. Th- this one of the things Scalzi does that I really like is he's got the uh, what uh, I've always heard you referred to as the uh, the law of the economy, law of economy of characters, where every character has a purpose. Uh, so if you're in a mystery and there's only one person who's not yet explained, well, man, they did it because <laughs> there's only they don't show you characters who are pointless, and there and there these there's the our protagonist, Doll, and then there's this other character who is his buddy who doesn't ever get killed, and you keep waiting to see why is he going to be important, and there's no explanation for why he's important, and in the in in the next to last chapter, Doll realizes. Um, Something that, that is Scalzi pulling it back. We, we've been reading this narrative all along, this book. And, and you know, you buy into the premise that they're controlled by the TV writers because that's what the story is about. And in the last chapter, uh, Scalzi undercuts that completely and says uh, – Dahl realizes that he's the protagonist of a different narrative, which is the book that we're reading. And he asks his friend right. – To confirm this and says, you know, you have no other purpose. You just kind of, you've never been hurt. You have no reason to be here. And yet you're always around. I think your purpose is to confirm to me whether this is true, which the character does and then says, now I got to go because I'm going to be on duty and he walks out and, and, uh, that's an amazing chapter because that's really Scalzi laying it all out there about like what it is to write characters and what happens to them when the book is over and is it's in everybody's imaginations. Um, and Dahl is the protagonist; he's not this red shirt because he's the main character in a novel that everybody at that point who you know has read the entire novel with him as the protagonist. So that's a great ending. Um, on its own, without the codas, and of course, Skullsy can't resist because he is a very funny writer, and and this is a funny book. But he can't resist one last joke, which is that Doll walks out too, and they'll live happily ever after until six months later, where the ship is hit by an asteroid and everybody dies. And then the no,
1: just kidding. And then the last
0: yeah. the last chapter is no, I'm just I'm just messing with you. <laughs> I
1: seriously they live happily for ever a full after. Full minute when <laughs> I read that next page. Uh,
0: it's rare that a book will make me laugh heartily laugh out loud and that last chapter i was i was laughing that was really funny <laughs> but that's that's right i mean it's it's they're not real he could kill them and it doesn't matter and and yet it does matter because you've invested something in these in these characters and i i, I realized that on one level this is completely kind of a ridiculously um self-referential thing that he does but um, but he, nev- it never, you know, it never seemed cheap. It never seemed phony to me. It never seemed like he was not taking the reader and the characters seriously. And I guess that's why I, I didn't, you know, I didn't ever, uh, sour on the, on the premise.
2: Well, you know, I thought the book, um, part of the redemption for me was, <clears throat> I, you know, I thought it was sort of cute. Like, uh, okay. So that whole first part, most, the, the largest part of the novel before the, uh, the code come in, which are, you know, significant enough in their own right. Um I enjoyed it, but I felt it was an extended premise, and I thought he took the premise and he went to the full extent it could be. I've read the same thing, I feel like in less clever form, without the science fiction aspect, but examining the notion of that, uh for instance, Muriel Spark's novel The Comforters, written in or published in nineteen fifty seven, examines this idea at some point depth in which uh, wow. a, write- a novelist starts hearing voices and the sound of a typewriter realizes it's exactly her life being, you know, led. So it's not a new idea. And I think some people writing about this thought, wow, what a great idea to have a meta novel. Like, isn't that original? It's like, okay, we know that's not original. Um, but I felt, I don't know, I felt it kind of played out a little far. And there's a lot of, um, you know, he wa- the one character walks into a bar and sees a version of another character that was killed, who's the bartender. and He had a bit part on the show at some point as that character that's killed. Oh, yeah. That's really that's really touching. And, you know, they have a warm moment. And I think Scalzi writes those moments well. But the what saved it for me, what pulled the whole thing together, I think, was the third coda, which is a beautiful story told very warmly and almost stands alone. Like, you almost don't need the entire rest of the book. Right for that story, but I think it benefits from it. And I think for some level, it sort of warmed the rest of the story for me.
0: Yeah. So, so uh, I'm glad you brought that up. One of the things that happens is one of these, one of this core of uh, this ensemble of red shirts that we meet. I mean, he does need to do, you know, what, what happens to redshirts, right he needs to take a character uh, that's like fundamentally if you're going to write a book like this you've got to meet these characters and build them up and then kill one of them and make it feel like it matters if even if you don't care about them you care about how it affects the other characters that they're upset by it and then he does that and you know again it's kind of the price of admission um and, but then exactly what you said is the thing about Scalzi doing this is like, he does the baseline and you think, okay, he did the baseline and that's not, he just doesn't stop there. He keeps going. And so we get a scene when they're back on earth, they're back in LA um, and they meet the actor who played their friend who died. And it's really emotional and upsetting and yet also happy in a way because he didn't die, I guess, in a way. Um I and I thought that was brilliant, right? Because it, it not it made it made that all matter more that he died when he was a redshirt because it mattered to them and now you you see how they they emotionally react to seeing him again in in real life. And that's played out even further in the codas, but you know that that you know, the more I think about it, the more I I, I just am impressed that that Scalzi had enough respect for his characters and his premise to take it all the way and not do what uh, I think a lesser writer would have done, which is sort of phone it in and just hit the notes and get out.
1: Yeah, I think the as I said, I think the codas elevate it for me from a good summer reading. You know, put it down after you finish reading it. Maybe you'll think about it a couple months from now. But the codas really made it stick in my head. And the first the first coda is funny. The first coda is really there just to make you think about it. And again, the you know, I'm just messing with you. They lived happily ever after. From the writer's point of view, that's fascinating.
0: So the first coda is uh, a blog, which is funny because Scalzi himself has a blog. A blog from one of the writers of The Intrepid who talks about his sort of descent into madness in a way – when he realizes that all of the things that he's writing are causing sort of real people in another universe to live these things, and he, he becomes sort of paralyzed about killing the moth, and his bosses are upset because the drama isn't as good when he's trying to protect his characters, which, again, is an interesting comment from a writer to say. Um, and I thought that was really funny because, you know, he he, he tries to – Throw in all of his knowledge of what it's like to be uh to to be a writer on the internet and have people reading and commenting and trying to f- figure out what, you know his, his secrets that he's trying to keep they kind of figure them all out because he gives too much information away um and you know I I thought that was I thought that was really funny while also exploring this whole idea that well if this premise is true wouldn't that really
2: mess you up as a writer yeah you think it'd be paralyzing when you you know you're actually whole literal power of life and death. Although, you know, there's sort of a shtick, which is that um, the people from the future, from the intrepid, come to the past. But once they go back, you know, there's not that same connection. Like, he knows intellectually there's a connection to these people in the future and he's affecting their real lives. But at the same time, you know, what are they going to come back again and say, look, you're doing it again. What are you doing to us? You know, there's sort of a – and if he stops writing the show – they continue to exist, apparently. So they're at some level. They just want to get the show canceled as well,
0: because then they can just keep on going on.
1: Yeah, they can make their own future.
2: Yeah, I mean, there's another part of the narrative we missed too. Is like, there's another story. There's so many stories embedded in this. Is that the producer of the show, or the see the showrunner, whose um, son is in a motorcycle accident and had a right. big part on the show. So they arrange this, you know, this incredibly elaborate swap where. Um, I don't even remember if I followed I, exactly I didn't right? understand the, it. They hope that because <laughs> the sun's future duplicate is in good shape, that if they, leave the, they take the future duplicate, wait, into the past, wait, what happens?
1: They basically just do a swap. They say, you, you are now going to be this person. And because we say you're this person, you're going to be that person. And everything's saved. The idea being that, you know, the universe that has created these weird sort of parallel future and past uh, worlds doesn't realize that because, you know, one is an actor and one is a real person, hey, they still have 100% of the same DNA. So if I take the one who's crazy crippled and in a coma and then we tell the other one, here, you're going to stay here and you're going to be in a coma now, we can take uh, and then have a hey an episode written in the narrative that says, oh, we fixed this guy's, you know, Horrible motorcycle accident, you know, never going to wake up from his, you know, vegetable state, we just write a end all be all fix for that, then he's going to be magically well in the future, and consciousnesses will traverse bodies and everything will be hunky-dory. Exactly.
2: Well, that's clear. The science is not important. What's important
1: is that it's supposedly, I mean, that's the the thesis of the book, right? Is The science is not important. It just kind of goes as it will.
2: It's true. Although he did a lot of waving of hands to make that particular thing work. But then you realize later that that's one of the codas is, you know, the codas are first person, second person, third person. The first person is the writer. The second person is this guy, the kid, uh, son of the writer, who's been in a coma and sort of rediscovering his life using the you know very difficult to write in the second person uh narrative approach and then the third person is the um actress who portrays the jenkins the guy hiding in the ductwork yeah, uh, his wife who's killed for a plot point which is what led him to discover the narrative that this is the actress that he never met because jenkins doesn't go back in time but one of the characters our first person narrative in the main part of the book um brings back some memories to this actress, even though, you know, she knows it can't be hers. She doesn't even get the full explanation, but she knows somehow there's another version of herself identical that had this life with this other person that was ended.
0: Yeah, that's an amazing piece of writing.
2: That's what I love, that coda. It was beautifully – I mean, like I say, you could read that coda by itself. But he had to set all this up. He had to give Je- – I mean, so there's the joke, right? He gave Jenkins a sort of ridiculous character. He gave Jenkins an enormous amount of backstory in the narrative, more than made sense. And he gave him the backstory so that we'd have – We'd care for Jenkins so that when he brought the coda in later, that right. it actually makes sense for us to feel bad. You know, you know, there's where Scalzi is talking about life itself, is that uh, God, the universe, whatever, cuts short some life for its narrative purposes. And, you know, in, in life, that's maybe the random forces are God's great plan. In the book, it's just Scalzi doing it, but he's still dicking with you. And then <laughs> Coda 3, you see what the um, what the impact is on a human life you know when sort of an arbitrary decision has happened and she's even one removed from that you know she's a third person observer of this and she uh, still has that impact and then has that beautiful rediscovery at the end
0: well it's the emotional impact too of um the death of this character that, i mean by the end john scalsey makes you care deeply about a red shirt who died which is this guy jenkins's wife who is dead by the time we meet him But and she was in this actress who played her was in like one episode of the show. And, you know, she wasn't important and he wasn't important, but he didn't die and she died. And it was to serve a plot point. And that's what red shirts are all about is deaths to serve plot points. And, you know, of course, if it was that person had a life and a family and their death doesn't matter for the show, but it would matter deeply to... You know, in reality, when somebody dies like that, it means a lot to a lot of people. And so, by the end here, we have this character who is who we never even saw, <laughs> who wasn't important, and who died, but was important to somebody who we did meet. And it becomes this really deeply affecting story based on this character who you know was in one scene and died in a TV
2: show. Call back to among others, of course, is the notion that uh, these people exist solely to serve a plot point and uh, more. In among others, worries that her use of the magic in that novel's world creates all the people necessary to populate the reading group that she wants to have.
0: Right. Well, I mean, writers do like writing stories about writing, right? And about narratives and about storytelling because it's what they know and they, and you can, you can be self indulgent. This is a bizarre book and it is about those things. And yet, I ultimately, I liked it. I mean, I guess I keep saying the same thing, which is, that this could have really been a disaster, <laughs> and it wasn't and he's to be credited for making lots of really good choices and taking his story seriously so that it didn't become a disaster I mean maybe we never never would have saw it if it was a disaster and he He took his premise and and started writing it, and then said oh ho i I think I've got a a direction I can take this that that will that will be good and i I think he did a pretty good job i mean it's not my favorite of his books by a long shot, but um and it's bizarre, it's one of the weirder books I have ever read. I would actually have to say because it is it's it's we haven't even talked about how you know I, oh man, the college papers that are gonna be written about this book because there's so much in it that is you know it's it's almost like um pop philosophy in a way because there's so much sort of existentialism in this book, right? It's just like what does it mean to be alive and what is the meaning of life, and are our live stories written by other people or written by ourselves and I mean you know, take those college students. Those are some ideas for papers for you.
2: Well, I think that there's also a case we made, the thing that Rem was talking about earlier, that you can read this book too. Like you could read this book as, hey, it's just this sort of light sci-fi read. I pick it up. You read the whole thing. There's the kicker, chapter 24. Ah ha, ha, ha. I was just screwing with you guys. Every We're all fine. Before you get to the codas, and you can read the codas and be confused and say, I don't get them. You know, I don't get this. But the first part of this book was sort of clever and fun, and I get it, and it's full of space stuff and doubles and time travel. That's great. And then completely ignore the codas and just say, I, I don't I don't get this part. It seems extra. These are like postscripts and I don't I don't know what these mean.
1: You know what? I think the, the codas make the book though. Yes. I mean oh, I, I
2: agree. I just mean people could misread the book though easily.
1: Oh yeah. I mean I guess I guess I could see that, but at the same time, I almost see this book as something is almost like Ray Bradbury-esque, where you have the lighthearted science fiction and then the undercurrents of it you know there's so much about the first half of this book that's so wildly scientifically inaccurate and <laughs> so many you know crazy things that go on that grounds the small stories of the codas so much more like i i think it was you were saying earlier jason about you know or maybe it was glenn about the codas sort of resembling a short story that you kind of need the first half of this book for background on and it's kind of interesting looking at them that way And that, I mean, Coda 3, you know, could very well be a short story on its own. Yeah. But because we have sort of the sci-fi caper in front, it actually works, like, it it ties it cohesively together. Whereas before, like, if I had just read Coda 3 in a science fiction anthology or something like that, I would have been like, oh, this is a, you know, this is an interesting short story but I don't really feel the sort of gut punch as you do having gone through the first half of the book.
0: For the coll- Another one for the college students is, you know, it's totally true. These these stories at the end, the codas at the end, don't have the impact or wouldn't have the impact were it not for the story that comes before. And since this is a story about um, these characters on a television show, I, I have to say, you know, you could think of it that way, that that some stories need a lot of setup before you get to the story and knowing the characters or having been in this world for a while is the thing that gives them impact and that's what tv shows do really well and in a way the novel does exist to set up that story and that story would not be strong without the novel being there and so because we understand how this world works and what has happened previously um then that story really works and and you know again there's a whole another college paper waiting to happen uh, for somebody who wants to write some literature papers about John Scalzi, Scott, what did you think of uh, of Redshirts as a as a, a voracious reader and uh, and a Star Trek fan too? Well,
3: you, uh, I didn't want to chime in since everyone was, uh, you know, expressing great praise for the book. Uh, and sadly, you would think that I am the ideal candidate for enjoying uh-huh. this book immensely. I love Star Trek. So that's a, that's a, a checkbox. I like John Scalzi, so that's that's a check, right? I enjoy uh, when writers write about writing uh, and include uh, themselves as characters and, and, you know, think about the narrative. And that's all what this book is about. But it did not work at all for me. Huh. Uh, I mean, it, well, I shouldn't say it didn't work at all for me. I thought it was a fun read, but I thought it was kind of... Uh, like a bubble, all surface. I didn't really think that he really delved into these ideas very much, and I think the problem, there are two problems uh, that made it didn't work for me, and uh, they're both obviously uh, subjective, right? So, the biggest one is humor, right? So, humor is so difficult to write because everybody has a different sense of humor. And I, the the... The humor in the book just did not work for me at all. I didn't like the last chapter. about Aww. I thought it was so cheap when he said, you know, oh, they're all dead. And then, haha, just kidding. That did, I, I didn't laugh at that. I just thought, that's a giant ripoff, and I hate you. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, and I didn't believe in... like I didn't care about the characters. So if you don't care about the characters, the codas don't really work because... I didn't care about what happened, and so the having more information about them didn't really matter to me. Uh, I Obviously, I appreciate what he was trying to do, uh, but it just did not work at all for me. Um, and I think that uh, another example of kind of like the metaphysical talking about story things that did work for me is there's an author – Called Paul Oster, who is uh, like one of the giants of postmodernism, and he wrote the the New York trilogy, uh, which is fantastic. One of my favorite novels ever, uh, and it's all about. It's kind of a detective story, but really, it's a story about the story. And Paul Oster is a character in it, and he's writing the book, but he's also in it. So it's very. It's kind of the same area that Scalzi's uh, working with, but obviously not with the sci fi twist. And it's unfair to compare paul Auster and jonathan scalsey because they're you know they're completely different writers obviously and they're they're trying completely different things uh but it just it i kept comparing it to that book and it would fall short as would i think 98 percent of the books written fall short of that margin that that mark so it's unfair obviously but yeah it didn't really work for me wow
2: is, is the short version of that That's the short version. no i think your criticism is valid because it's it's this is one of the i think things i like about the book too is that um there's so much in it there's so much to like dislike or critique he's packed so much in it and i think you came down on the downside of a lot of things that the rest of us may have found as more up properties
3: Yeah, and I can totally see the other side. I can see how as I was reading this, I was thinking I could be enjoying this. (laughs) (laughs)
2: How dare you, your points are equally valid. Exactly, but I
3: was i I was sad that I wasn't enjoying it as much as I I knew I could be. But it just there was something that just didn't work for me.
0: You have to admit, he he this could have been really, really bad though. It it was
3: not it was not bad at all. It was not I don't think it's a failure. Uh I think it he did. He took the idea and went interesting places with it, just at it overall it did not work for me, but I think that it is uh it, it was it an attempt that was ambitious and certainly didn't crash and burn. It just was like I was just meh about it, I was like yeah. Eh.
0: I'm not going to nominate it for a Hugo Award or anything, right? I, I and I, but I think I, I do wonder how much of my reaction to it was just sort of relief that it was not the terrible thing that I kind of envisioned that it might be. That that he was, I, I, like I said, I really admire that he fully committed to his premise and just kept going with it and kept exploring it. I think you're right that it's not as funny as it could be ind- individually. Although I did like the ending. I. I I I I that I was totally suckered by that, and I didn't. I, I laughed, so I, I took it the other way, and not that it was a ripoff, but that just that it was a it was kind of a funny a funny joke. But um, but I, I did find the last the 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 coda's affecting, and that that. Uh, and I think ren said this too. I think that kind of put it over the top for me into the I liked it category is his effort in trying to commit fully commit to his premise and then the fact that um at the end you 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 know I did like these characters on you know on earth <laughs> on our current planet earth who are affected by this crazy science fictional premise in a real human way. I, I like that about it. It it you know so that those are the things that that made me like it but you know I I see where you're coming from, Scott. I I think there there are plenty of things that I have issue with here. It's certainly not his best work by a long shot. I mean, it might even be his worst novel. Um, But I've liked all his novels, so...
2: Well, did you like The Android's Dream? Because this reminds me of... uh...
0: That's the one I haven't... That's the one I haven't read. That's the only one I haven't read. It's sitting on. It's the a keyboard.
2: little bit of a hot mess. I mean, I was going to say like Redshirts <laughs> is uh is a, a positive version of that, in that like Redshirts he pulls everything together. Android's Dream it's like it's a lot of interesting, funny ideas that he stuffed into a new duffel bag and shook. So it's a little <laughs> not convenient, but it's just like there's a lot of plot in it, and to, to sort of make a joke about a Philip K. Dick book at some point, you know, that's that's part of the whole point of this large. Joke of the book, um, but yeah, that's you should you should read it. That's a good read. It's a good read. Involves um, uh, animal husbandry.
0: I, I gotta say, I'm actually uh, just as a, a, a side note, since we're talking about John Scalzi, and we did a whole podcast about him. Yeah. Um, I'm a little worried about John Scalzi. Uh, honestly, <laughs> I, I why I like him. I li- I like many of his novels. I think his blog is really interesting. I'm a little worried that he is he is not. Focused on the things that make him a good writer, and oh. he is. I mean, when I said earlier about stunts, I mean he did this book, which is this wacky, high concept thing, and he, you know, he quitted himself okay, right? Uh, or, or not if you're Scott. Uh, he, <laughs> I he, I don't he, regret reading it. He I did. Mean. He did. He did. Um, Fuzzy Nation, which again I kind of liked, although I actually reread the original uh and thought it was better than Fuzzy Nation was. He did Shadow War of the Night Dragons. He's doing this I guess like a serial novel thing on tor.com. He I just I wonder if he is you know is he not focusing on the things that made him successful in the beginning writing these novels like Old Man's War and uh and that series and has become almost like a, you know, the internet celebrity sci-fi writer who does crazy, uh, you know, high concept projects. Instead, I don't know. I because I, I I feel like he's done a lot of those lately.
2: Well, this is more Ready Player One than it is uh, Old Man's War. That's for sure. That's true. And yeah. I
3: went
0: to see him read
3: uh, for for this book, and I kind of got that I it I I'm sure he's a lovely man. He seemed very personable. Uh, but I I got the sense that he was really, really enjoying his internet celebrity, which of course you know he should, and he should enjoy his success. Uh and who am I to judge what he does? Sure. Plus? Uh <laughs> and he's he's far more successful than I am, so who what, he doesn't care what I think. But I it just got I got a weird vibe from the whole thing.
0: Yeah, he's got uh, the Will Wheaton reading his audiobook and he's got the Jonathan Colton doing a song for his you know, for for the novel there's like a red shirt song
1: there is it's cute, but,
0: but it, it, it feels like, you know, ha, is he uh, nerds on the internet love that stuff. Right. But I, 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 part of me feels like it, it, it can be really insular and, and you, you risk believing your, if you believe your own PR, uh, and you risk right. disappearing up your own backside, and I, I'm worried about that with John Scalzi. No,
3: no well, that's what the point at which you, you know, at the reading, I was like, oh, this is not good, because obviously you, you're doing a reading. People go there who like you, right? So it's kind of an easy crowd. Uh, and I got he was getting a lot of laughs, and he he wrote this um, dialogue thing set in the Red Church universe about a lawyer suing the uh, United Union. Uh, uh you know on part uh, uh, under labor laws and trying to get a settlement for it right and so he wrote this thing so he could do it at various um readings and he told people it's secret don't tell anybody about it whatever uh and you know it was mildly amusing but people were laughing their heads off like this was the most insanely funny thing they've ever heard uh which i think if you kind of if you do not you know set yourself in your mind okay This is a very uh, amenable audience, and perhaps this isn't as funny as it would be elsewhere. You might start believing your own hype.
2: Well, this is the uh, Woodstock implosion. It's that um, you have a very large audience of people who have now found their sort of arch, semi-ironic, uh, ironic, semi-erotic, uh, you know, crowd So you've got, oh you know, my. you've got Paul and Storm and Will Wheaton and John Scalzi and a whole bunch of other people, Felicia Day. Like, John, everyone is John working Hushman, on everyone else's yeah. projects. Everyone's involved in it, and it... You can't critique it from the standpoint of popularity because all of these people are achieving a measure of fame beyond a geek subculture. Or you know, um, both you know, by any measure, they're making money, they're getting popular, they're uh, leeching into mainstream culture. But it is a stachosphere, you know, echo chamber um, that is threatening to swallow us all in into a singularity of eight-bit graphics.
0: No, it's not beyond though. That that's a complete loss of perspective. It is concentrated (laughs) nerd subculture. but it's not beyond it.
2: Well, it is a black it is a black hole so there's it's a lot It's super
0: of it, it's super narrow uh nerds uh appealing to other nerds and yeah. you know it's great that Redshirt's got the marketing that it did and it, it's great that it, it that John Scalzi sold a lot of copies of it more than his other books but he's got a lot of other books that are better and my th- and that's sort of the root of my concern is it would be a damn shame if people as talented as John Scalzi and some of the other people that we've mentioned here Uh, You know, not a damn shame that they can make a living by serving that nerd audience. But I think a damn shame if they are – that they kind of turn inward and are only trying to serve that audience and not trying to serve a broader audience and think more broadly. And that's my concern. I'm sorry. That's
2: where I would go. That's why I'm calling it an implosion is that there's a lot of artists facing inward in that circle who are actually doing quite well with it. And some of it leaks out. You know, some uh, escapes the – Woodstock, Black Hole, and then Horizon. But, um, so the broader culture. But I think there is a lot of inward turning. I mean, Jonathan Colton's an interesting case. You've devoted an episode to him. You've talked to him. Uh, but I mean, his music can be broadly appealing, although it has a narrower appeal to a particular niche audience as well that maybe that follows him much more closely. And that niche audience is now big enough. He doesn't have to appeal. I mean, this is like the Louis C.K. thing or all of those things. There's a point at which you don't have to appeal outward and do stuff that may be more challenging or difficult or be interesting to a group outside of that insular part and I think there's a danger there as you say right. uh, like I mean I'm sure it hasn't really happened yet but you know I feel I see a lot more of that everyone pointing to each other in a circle and you know outside that circle are ten million people with dollar bills
0: and and there's nothing wrong with with saying I can make a I can make a living I found an audience and I can make a living at this I mean I think that's fantastic that people like uh like Jonathan Colton can, can make a living because they found, even though they're not broadly popular, they have found an audience big enough that loves them enough to support them. I think that's great. Artistically, it bothers me because I feel like that leads to this sort of the, you know, potentially you're just. You, I know my audience, and I know what they want. And I'm not saying that that uh, that like Colton would do this, but it would be very easy for Jonathan Colton. I, I've heard him uh, when he was on with Merlin Mann on Merlin Mann's podcast. He talked about uh, the you know the archetypal Jonathan Colton song, and you know you could you can do a paint by numbers Jonathan Colton song fairly easily. Uh, it might it be as good as his, but uh, you know I. I if I, if he's an artist that I like, I want to see him stretch himself and, and push himself. And, and Scalzi, I'm worried is, is, you know, he's had a lot of projects recently that I'm not so sure. I think they're like more high concept appealing to the, to the, the masses who love him and maybe not trying to push himself further. And Hey, you know, if, if you can make a living doing that, that's great. But as a consumer of your work, I, I would like to see you not be kind of in this insular, you know, insular nerdosphere.
2: I think you hit it with high concept too. It's something. I mean, that's that deal, right? It's like high concept means you can describe it in shorter than an elevator ride between two floors. You know, while you're, <laughs> while you're walking up three yep. flights or three stairs, uh, three steps. Red stairs, shirts, the novel, the plot. and it's like red shirts. I wonder if that's what bothered you about it initially. It bothered me a bit too. Was you're like the title of the book tells you what it's going to be about, and then the book turns out not to entirely. Uh, confirm our worst fears <laughs>
0: it 's like scott. a relief
2: and the no, sorry and uh, he uh, i 'm sorry i 'm scott i 'm usually you in this scenario so uh, so the book doesn 't entirely confirm our worst <laughs> fears, but really the words red shirts and the knowledge he writes about science fiction tells you what you think the book's going to be about and everything else is elaboration. And it's much better and more subtle than that. And you worry that someone can just do a call out, you know, hey, I'm going to talk about, you know, wet vax, And it's like, "Woo, Colton, you know, you worry that the whole thing becomes call outs, shout outs.
0: Right. Right. No, I think that's it. I mean, and again, I don't want to I, I think it's great that people love. Wootstock and people, you know, people love Will Wheaton and they love Jonathan Colton and they love Paul Yeah, Storm I totally and all
2: love that. that. I want that. I want that culture to, to creep out though. I feel like when you, when everybody's on a cruise ship, you know, when it's all uh, <laughs> Joko Cruise and Wootstock and things like that. I think it's great inside there. And then I also want it to be, um, I don't want to be validated, but I want it to be, uh, you know, this is sort of what we were talking on episode 100 of The Incomparable about, uh, ghettoization <laughs> and genre ghettos and so forth. And it's, again, it's that same thing you want. You don't want the stuff you like necessarily to be entirely trapped inside of self-perpetuating hermetic memes that only people right. who have steeped themselves so fully in the culture can understand. You want to be able to talk to other people about this stuff too.
0: Yeah, and if it becomes so insular that it's great if everybody can make a living at it. But I, I'm not really – ultimately not interested in reading a novel by a person who is only interested in making references to the circle of people that we all know and are all – I mean at, at some point it's just – yeah it's just disappointing and depressing and I, so you, I you know you're not
2: gonna buy my new novel called Colton Day Wheaton The Eternal Trilogy yeah okay well I'll
0: be yeah. shopping around Ready Player Two Ready Player Ooh. Two
2: that's my favorite
0: yeah I don't know I uh, that that's uh that's it's just a it's just a feeling, a little spider sense at the back that, that it's just uh so I hope John Scalzi while he's he should make money and as much of it as he as he can and he should do he should follow his bliss, but I hope uh you know I, I hope he continues to challenge himself creatively and not just kinda of pander to the to the audience that um is a little smaller and more insular and uh you know. But hey, Richard Redshirt sold really well, so maybe I did. Ooh, Maybe not. There'll be a, a red shirts too. You know, Shadow War of the Night Dragons, uh which I read because it was a Hugo nominee. You know, it's funny, but at the same time it's really just kind of a Terry Pratchett riff. It it felt like a lost chapter from a Terry Pratchett novel.
3: Yeah, I read that 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 uh short story and and when you compare it to the other nominated short stories, you think, why? Why yeah. why is this here?
0: Oh, I I so so in the Hugos you can you can vote um uh no award is one of the options and you can rank them it's a ranked choice vote so you can have six votes if there're five nominees and that means you can insert no award in the middle and oh, say below that. here if these are the only ones left I vote to not have an award which is great cuz it's the fu of of award voting it's hilarious in the best novel category you might put no award above uh deadline by mira grant just as an example not saying that's how i true. voted that's how I voted, oh. and for for a short story, for a short story, I, I voted um, I voted no award above Shadow War of the Night Dragons because it doesn't fit. It's a joke, and I'm actually really concerned that because people like John Scalzi, he, he's going to get the award because hey, he's a nice guy, and he is, and he's funny, and he's got his website, and that's great. And, and, and no, <laughs> it's not appropriate. It doesn't fit. It's a it's a funny joke uh, that's really a Terry Pratchett parody yeah. sort of. And no. No, yeah.
3: And I mean there are
0: some some of those short
3: stories, the nominated short stories are just absolutely beautiful and I, yes. I, I I it would be a
0: shame for a joke to win. It would be a joke for a shame to win.
1: But still, if it's a well crafted joke, I think it has its own its own merits. I don't necessarily think it should win either, but it's I think writing it off as a an April Fool's Day prank. Rather than looking at it as, I mean, the story is good as far as farcical as it is.
0: Is it? I mean, it's. Uh, I I thought it was kind of funny, but really, uh, uh, you know, again, like I said, I, it felt like a Terry Pratchett kind of thing to me, and just a chapter. And there were some jokes in it, and it was funny, but I, I don't know. I mean, it was. It didn't feel. Some of those short stories are are really kind of beautiful and spectacular, and then this was, uh, you know, an internet joke that was mildly funny. I, I just don't, I don't know. I don't, I don't think they measure up at all. Maybe they need a new category that's like best internet joke.
1: <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily think that the story is better than the rest of the short stories out there for the Hugo's, but it's just I, I'm reticent to disqualify something just because it was written for the internet or written as a joke or something like that. You know, I would – it's it's not as good a story as the other short stories there, yep. but that's why it should not win the Hugo. Not that it was, oh, it was right. an April Fool's project.
3: Oh, no. I mean, if it was a beautifully written joke that, uh, you know, on the – well, I guess it all goes to what do you think is uh, – why should something get a Hugo, right? So if it's just because it's fun to read and it's popular, then sure, that should get the Hugo. If you think that it's an award – for, you know, the craft of writing and, you know, uh, how, you know, how well written something is and how it affects you. Then I think that that probably shouldn't win a Hugo. Yeah. Um, but of course I guess it is a popularity contest when it comes down to it. So
0: maybe it will win. So, uh, before we go, I wanted to just very quickly, uh, go around the, uh, the room and ask my favorite incomparable book club question, which is what are you reading? Scott McNulty,
3: what are you uh, reading? Uh, oh, I I'm reading a book. Yay! Uh, yay! Um, it's an actual physical book that I got. From, <gasps> uh, there's this building that has books in it, and you can take it out for free, and it's not theft. Uh, so wow. it's it very exciting. Uh, so I read – there's a new book this that just came out called Sharps by an author called uh, K.J. Parker, who I had never heard of, uh, but they were really marketing this Sharps book. So um, I bought it um, with some Google credit that I had from the Google Play Store, and I read it, and I thought it was really good. Uh, so that led me to want to read another one of this person's books. I was going to say her, but – K.J. Parker is a pen name, and uh, no one knows who this person is or what their sex is. Um, So I am currently reading uh, a book by K.J. Parker called Devices and Desires, uh, about uh, basically an engineer who is kicked out of his city because he uh, uh, created an abomination, which meant that he built uh, a little toy outside of the specification the agreed upon specifications of the guild Uh, so they were going to kill him and he escapes and uh, it's all about how he's going to exact revenge upon this city um, through a very complicated means one imagines in this trilogy this is the first book in the trilogy Uh, so we will see how it goes
0: from the library Mm -hmm. it came from the library very nice Uh, Serenity Caldwell what are you reading
1: I'm reading several things, also from the library actually, because <gasps> the new place that I moved into, uh, the library is three blocks from. So I feel like it's a cardinal sin if I don't go check out books yes. at least once a week. We love the library. Uh, I have actually, I've never read the Dark is Rising series. So despite being young adult and despite me having should have having read it like ten years ago, I picked it up because I'm like, hey, I've been meaning to read this, and this seems like it could be interesting summer reading, despite the fact that it's set in Christmas time. Uh so I have that on my on my I'd say my bedside table but really it's a floating bookshelf in my doorway because I don't have room for a bedside table in the studio. So that's sitting on my floating bookshelf as well as Stranger in a Strange Land. It's uh, uh it's catch up time. Yeah. I'm I'm using the summer as catch up time for books that I have been meaning to read but haven't read yet. And I just finished uh Joe Walton's uh Half Halfpenny. uh what's the series called scott uh, like the, the overall small, series the small, small change. change small change yeah i i keep on thinking of its other name where it's like a uh a brief look at fascism or something, something like that. <laughs> odes odes to fascism um but that i just finished reading the third book in that series and that is a really lovely trilogy I mean, for people who haven't read
0: we're gonna that. need to do a book club about that series i think yeah we should.
1: I. I. W- we should do that. We now should. That we have a quorum of people who have read it.
0: Yep. Well, I haven't read the third one yet, but I'd be more than happy to. I just was, you know, depressed enough by the first two that I thought I'd leave it out there for a little while.
1: The third one is pretty good. All right. I liked it.
0: I'll read it. Glenn, what are you reading?
2: Ah, uh, well, I've had an epic uh, couple months of work, uh, in which work has occupied. Have you read Most nothing? Most of my waking hours. So I read Red Shirts. Um, ah. I'm actually reading, <clears throat> I think the closest thing to an appropriate book that I'm reading is The Phantom Toll Booth, which I'm reading aloud to my five and seven and a fraction, almost eight-year-old. Almost And eight. they adore it. It's a 51-year-old book. It's a lovely book. I remember reading it as a kid and not totally getting it, and it's fun to read it as an adult, and it is so Horribly full of puns and metonyms and synecdoche and silliness and humbuggery. And it's, um, it's a wonderful book. And what's great is it works so amazingly for kids when you're reading stuff that's really deep critique of language at some level and silly. The silly part comes through even when the critique of society, language, freedom, uh, patriarchal domination, whatever, uh, when that part is requires more advanced years so i highly recommend that a 51 year old book uh delightful nice. to read and uh humbuggery is my favorite sort of buggery by the way hum, so. humbuggery is the only acceptable form that doesn't get you an explicit label in itunes mm-hmm.
0: i uh, i just finished a talent for war by jack mcdevitt which is the first of his alex benedict uh series of novels uh which of course i I've read all the others <laughs> and <laughs> saved the first for last, which is very strange, but I just sort of fell into those books and they don't really need to be read in any order. And that's, you know, I, I have to laugh because this in many ways is the archetypal McDevitt adventure novel. They're fun, big, broad, you know, widescreen space adventure novels. This is Benedict is the uh, Indiana Jones of outer space. He's a, an archaeologist who finds lost treasures throughout the galaxy. Um, and what's uh, funny about it is that McDevitt has his things that he has in every, like in every Jack McDevitt book, somebody will munch on a sandwich. Sandwiches will fi- figure in the plot at some point. There will be a sk- they have skimmers that they get around in. They're like little air cars. There will be a skimmer accident, probably involving sabotage. There will be a shocking moment when one character is threatened by another character with a gun. Uh, and there will usually be something that happens planet side. Uh, when they're down on a planet that threatens their ability to go back to the the ship that's in orbit. And I swear, you know, four out of five of those things happen in every single one of his novels. And I love them, but he's got his things that he does. Um, but I love that there are all these various planets, and usually his plots involve, you know, we don't know why this person never came back, but there may be, like, there may be an undiscovered planet that they went to that's a secret, or there may be a spaceship lost somewhere that we could find. And Uh, I I, I like that, that that kind of uh, stuff. And it's set in like the year 10,000. And so it's also very amusing because they keep investigating ancient history and ancient history is still like the year 8,000 on some (laughs) planet somewhere where they've lost all the records. Um, And that is really funny too. So it's a a nice uh, sort of light summer reading kind of thing that it's easy, fun, uh, sci-fi for the summer. And given that I'm also trying to get through Perdido Street Station by China Miéville, and boy, I am having the devil of a time getting through that. So I, I read an entire other book just to just to procrastinate and avoid reading the
2: Perdido Street Station. That's a t- it's tough. I've read that one. I've read that one too. Uh, I wish I could unread that one. I beg your pardon, but it's true. Well, maybe I shouldn't. Maybe I should abandon it. I don't know. It's a big, messy book. My Glenn Spence official review. Big, messy book. The payoff uh, is so horrible and unsatisfying that <laughs> the rest of the sprawling book seems to be less useful in its nature you know maybe like a lot of authors has problems with the pay the payoff and i have to say that perdido street station sets up an awful lot for what crumbles into a pile of crud
0: <laughs> i recall dan morin saying at one point that he he felt like he had to take a shower after reading perdido street station because he thought it was so kind of dirty and gross and ugly
2: and nasty yeah I feel the same way. I felt, I felt covered with like undergrowth and beetle <laughs> protrusions, and things like that. It was horrible. It was wow. like you just felt like, oh man, okay. what's come on me? Oh, it won't come off. I didn't maybe scrub. I will just give up on like that. Street and Station. if it had paid off, I would be okay with it. But I, I just don't feel there are characters and plots and pieces abandoned so much on the sides of the track that you know you are like you have snowbanks full of plot detritus as the train rumbles on. Yeah.
0: Wow. Okay, well, that got me totally up for that book.
2: <laughs> there you go. I just saved you 800 pages or something.
0: Yeah, pretty much. Pretty much. Alright, well, I am going to close up the Incomparable Book Club for this uh, this edition. We'll be back with another book, hopefully, soon. Maybe, in fact, we'll talk about those Joe Walton books. That's a great idea. I'm glad we came up with it. Um, so, until next time, I want to thank my guests for reading the books, uh, because not everybody reads the books, but these three people, they read the books. So, Glenn yeah, Fleischman, Thank you very much for being here.
2: Thank you for having me. I read the books.
0: Yes, you do. That's what I said. I said you read the books. Do you read the books? Yes. I read the books. Good. We read the books together sometimes. Serenity Caldwell, thank you for reading the books, too.
1: You know, I I love reading the books. I'm glad that I have an excuse for reading the books besides my own love of books because it – Accentuates the love of books.
0: Yeah, I feel funny now when I when I'm not in the middle of a novel. I feel like I'm getting horribly behind, and the, the incomparable book club will suffer. It's panic. Yeah,
1: panic and confusion. Gotta
0: read more books. And Scott McNulty. Nobody has read more books than Scott. Nobody's forgotten more books <laughs> than Scott McNulty. I'm
3: sure somebody out there has read more books than I have, and f- have forgotten them as well. But thank you for the
0: No one in my sphere, in my limited nerdosphere, has well, read more books than I'll me. take that. All right And that brings us to the end of the incomparable podcast number 101. Thanks for listening. As always, you can visit us at 5 by five dot TV slash incomparable Please write a lovely review of our podcast on iTunes. If you don't like our podcast, don't write a review. That's all we ask. And until next time for the Incomparable, I am Jason Snell. Thanks for listening.
2: So here's an exercise. What if he had written it so the codas were the first three parts of the book and then the sci-fi novel was the last part?
1: Yeah. No, I don't think it It would have been terrible. Because again, you're you're having having dessert before – yeah.
2: Yeah, well, I mean, it would have been interesting. It would have been a very peculiar way to do it, but it's, I mean, it's peculiar uh, the way he did it as well. But I mean, you could read it that way. You could read the three code. It's some, you know, some people suggest reading Moby Dick uh, chapter by chapter backwards. Oh, here we go. And, uh, you know, you could read Coda 3, 2, 1 and not know the full scope of things, but be getting a glimmering and then have the fully presented universe. I'm not saying one should do that, but it actually works that way as well.
1: <laughs> yeah. Uh,
0: drink heavily and then read Moby Dick backward. And then we'll see what you say. No, I, Every I, word
2: backwards. I
0: mean, not to. Not to. Oh, uh, here's another paper for the college Ishmael, students out there. call
2: me. <laughs>
0: um, that's, that's like reading it sideways. <laughs> it, it, maybe. Uh, read it, Stick it in a blender and then read the pages as they come out of the blender. Wait,
2: are you starting an incomparable university? I missed that. Uh, I, I am now. Incomparable you.
0: John Scalzi 101.
1: Admissions this fall.